Please turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 to 23. You can also follow along on page 7 of your bulletin. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men sat out from Bala and Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nakin, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. When she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisin to each person in the whole crowd of Israel, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. This is the word of God. 
if you're new or visiting, uh, we've been looking at passages in the Old Testament that uh, demonstrate, that teach us how God works through brokenness to bring about salvation. And uh, there's this underlying theme uh, in all these passages where you see how God also builds character, uh, not competence, but character through the brokenness. And today's passage, it's challenging because, I mean, the people who need to get this passage the most uh, assume it's not for them. So in a sense, we all need to pay attention. Now, the Ark of the Covenant is the central piece of furniture at the center of the tabernacle, later on the centerpiece of the temple. This is the ancient place of worship. It's a wooden box plated with gold, and over the top there are these two angels, they're called cherubim, that are facing each other. And it was said that God's presence was so connected to the Ark in the Old Testament that it was said that he was enthroned above the angels, and thus that place was, became known as the mercy seat. Because one time each year, one man, the high priest, would enter into the holy of holies of the tabernacle. This is the centerpiece of the tabernacle, and he would make a sacrifice for the people of God. This is where the heavy brilliance, this is where the beauty of God dwelled. The Hebrew word for that is kavod, the glory of God. That's where he dwelled. That's what David, now he's king, that's what he was after. It's what he needed. It's what he wanted. I'm going to submit to you that we do too. So we're going to look at three things today. Our need for the presence of God, the problem of the presence of God, and God's provision for his presence. Our need for his presence, the problem of his presence, and lastly, God's provision for his presence. First, we're going to look at the need. Why did David want the ark? The first five verses of this passage, it provides us a context. You see, the Philistines... They were the enemies of Israel. They captured the ark decades prior. So the ark, this is the presence of God. It was lost. And even though it was sent back for decades, it was kept in a very remote place called Kiriath-Jerim. It was basically on the periphery of Jerusalem, the periphery of God's city, the holy city. And it wasn't in the tabernacle. It wasn't in the center place of the city. And now David is king. And he establishes his capital at Jerusalem. So he wants to, that's where he builds the tabernacle. The tabernacle is brought there. And now he wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Lord, to the rightful place in Jerusalem, in the center of of his city. Why? One, David, he's the king. He wants God to be central to his people, central to his society. He wants God to be the shaping, central shaping influence in his culture. But secondly, it's much more personal than that. In Psalm 27, David writes, One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I would dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. In other words, David is the king. He's the leader of his people. But he knew that if he didn't have a deep, real, intimate personal relationship with God, a personal experience of God, regularly, moment by moment, he knew he wasn't going to make it in this life. But why? After all, God's everywhere, right? The ark represented the face of God, the immediate presence of God. This is the Shekinah glory of God, the kavod of God. And David knew in order to experience God personally, in order to experience him intimately, he needed the ark. What does that mean? I'm going to say it this way. 
It's one thing to know God intellectually. It's one thing to know God cognitively, to study about God, to study theology. It's one thing to believe in God, to know that God exists and to believe in him. It's another thing, though, to be deeply intimate in a way that nourishes your soul. It's another thing to be richly intimate with God in a way that it really shapes your life. And what David is saying, it's one thing to believe that God loves me, that he's gracious, that he deeply approves of me, and yet that's still cognitive. To know that is still cognitive. Simply knowing is not going to shape you with the foundations that you need to make it through all the valleys of your life. I'm going to give you an example. There are people here in this room who've absolutely heard and know that God is loving. You know God is loving. You know God is gracious. And through Jesus, you know that you could be called a child of God. But when you're presented, when you're presented with the opportunity to date somebody, even if they're not a Christian, even if your friends say, well, this person, I don't think that person's a good fit. They may affect your life spiritually. Dating right now, it's good. You're already wrapped into this person. Into, into, you're wrapped into him and you're wrapped into her. And, or, or when you're presented with the opportunity to make money, lots of money, but you know it may threaten your integrity. You know it may threaten your family. God's love, God's grace, your sonship, being a child of God is placed on the periphery. That's what happens. Only if God's approval, only if his love is more spiritually real to you than anyone else's approval, than anyone else's love, only if knowing God becomes richer, becomes more, a more secure experience than your financial gain, financial wealth, or your security, will you be able to say, my relationships, my wealth, they're important, but they're not my identity. Only then can you do the right thing then. That's a real experience of God, living out of real reality beyond and beneath the visible reality. Now listen, if you say, well, I believe that God loves me, but then you're devastated by loneliness, or you're devastated by critique, criticism, or you're devastated by failure, then God's love is not spiritually real to you. You see that? You see, God's glory... God's kavod glory, that means heaviness. It's a brilliant heaviness. It means it's weighty in your life. Why? Because his, heavy, his presence is heavy. Because his presence is brilliant and beautiful. But oftentimes, it doesn't really carry much weight. We oftentimes put God in the periphery of our lives. And, and so his brilliance, his heaviness, his beauty, it doesn't outweigh other things in our lives. And David knew that if he had great intimacy with God, then he would have a weighty joy, a weighty joy that's not based on circumstances, and it won't dissolve when there's trouble or suffering in his life. It only gets deeper. It only makes him more resilient. It only gets stronger and more weighty. So David says, I want to gaze on that beauty. I want that beauty in my life all the time. I want to see his face. I need God to, for God. Not, I don't need God for things. And then and only then will I reach my true potential, my ultimate potential. Well, we need that too, the presence of God. That's the first point. The second point is there's a problem with the presence of God. I mean, how did the ark get lost in the first place? Here's how it went down. You have Hophni and Phinehas. They're these two sons of the high priest Eli who who was in charge of the tabernacle. But they were corrupt and and they embezzled and they seduced women. 
So in 1 Samuel chapter 3, the two sons of the high priest, uh, when, when the Israelites were out of battle against the Philistines, when they were out of battle against their enemies, they carried the ark into the camp and everyone gets slaughtered. And we're talking about 30,000 people, including Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli. And the ark got captured. I mean, this is tragic. This is the ark of God. This is his glory. This is his glory presence. This is his kavod glory. And it's gone. When the pregnant wife of Phineas, one of those corrupt priests, when she heard the news, she immediately goes into labor and she dies. But she has a son. And she names that son as she's reflecting on the glory of God departing from his people. She names him Ichabod, which in Hebrew is Ikavod, which means no glory. The glory of God has departed from it. And it brought her such distress, she dies upon giving birth. Now, the Philistines have the ark, and every time they put the ark in one of their own temples, the statue of Dagon, who is the god that they worshipped, the statue of Dagon, they would find the next morning, he would be on his face. Sometimes body parts shattered of the idol. You see that? And so, uh, and every single time the Philistines put the ark in one of their towns, there were plagues and tumors that would break out everywhere until they finally said, look, we need to get rid of this ark. We need to get rid of this thing. So what do they do? They put the ark on this cart, this ox cart, it, without a driver, and they sent it back towards Israel. That's what they did. Now, when the cart got to Israel, Beth Shemesh, the men said, hey, look, it's the ark. So what did they do? They looked inside, and they opened the ark up, and 70 men died. So essentially, the ark was left alone for about 20 years at this remote place, Kirith Jerem. And now David, decades later, says, I need the presence of God in my life. So he gathers 30,000 men together to bring them back, to bring it back. They put the ark on an ox cart, and men walked nearby to guard it. Yet Ahio, he was basically in front, and you had Uzzah, he was one of them. Uh, walking, walking alongside the ark. But in verse 6 that we read today, on a hill, the oxen stumble. And what happens? The ark's about to fall down. And so Uzzah reaches out his hand. He puts his hand up to stop the ark from hitting the ground. And what happens? Instantly, he's killed. Thousands of people are celebrating. There was a parade and a procession. And, and they were praising. And all of a sudden, everything stops. A man is dead. And David, in verse 8, he is angry. In verse 9, he is afraid. He's angry and afraid. Now, if you're like me, reading this passage, you're thinking, I mean, where is the grace of God in this text? Where is the grace of God that's always being preached here at this church? So we need to deal with this. I mean, it's a problem. We need to deal with it, one, because it's a passage in the Bible. As much as, I mean, if I were to write the Bible, I would leave out passages like this. It's not good marketing, right? But there must be a purpose to this passage, it's written here. A lot of preachers want to avoid preaching on texts like this. But secondly, the reason that a lot of people leave the church is what? They say, well, this is why I don't like the God of the Bible. He's always angry. He's always filled with wrath. And so we need to know. You know, we need to look at this text. Now, the Bible gave explicit instructions, guidance, around handling the ark. There are four of them. One, it always had to be covered. It always had to be veiled. Um, it contained certain things that were sacred, such as the Ten Commandments. So you can't just touch it. Secondly, it always had to be carried. The ark had these golden rings on the side where you would slide these poles right through. And men, 
specific men, this is the third thing, only specific types of men who were trained to carry the ark, right, to kind of lift up the poles and basically carry the ark. They were Levite priests. Only they could carry the ark. And lastly, as a result, you never touched it. In this one narrative, every one of those rules were neglected. Now, some of you are thinking, ah, there it is. I knew it. I knew it. Uzzah didn't follow the rules. That's why he got zapped. A lot of us were brought up thinking that, well, that's what the Christian life is about. You got to follow the rules. If you don't follow the rules, you're going to get zapped. It's a lot more nuanced than that, and here's why. When the ark was placed on the cart in the first place, think about it. Somebody placed that ark onto an ox cart. They didn't die. When those guys put that ark onto the ox cart to send it back to, to Jerusalem or to, to Israel, nobody died. You see? No one died there. Why only Uzzah? It had to have been a deeper reason. You see, there were these rules about approaching God. But they, they weren't typical rules simply to appease a divine figure. For example, Moses always talks about how to approach God in the Old Testament. How to approach the tabernacle, how to approach the ark. But he never says, well, if you do this, then God will be happy. God will be appeased. God will be pleased. Then you're okay. He never says that. He says, the reason why I want you to treat God with this type of reverence is then you will know there is no other like our God. His glory has a weight to it. There is a heaviness to it. I want you to know how weighty he is. It's why only one man one time a year would enter into the back of the temple, the tabernacle, the high priests, through a blood sacrifice. So you couldn't just forget the rules. You don't just neglect the rules because if you forget the rules, you're forgetting who God is. You're forgetting how weighty he is, how holy he is, how much glory there is. The Ark of the Covenant is God's way of saying there is a deep rift, a chasm that exists between humanity and God because of sin. And you can't just bridge it with rules. You can't just bridge it with obedience. It's more than rules that are broken. There is a deep intimacy that was broken. There is a deep relationship that was broken. So it's more than you're just breaking rules. You're breaking God's heart. And that needs a payment. That needs blood. That means death. Atonement. Uzzah died, you know, on one hand because he broke the rules, sure. But if you think about it, I mean, the oxen stumbled. This is the holy presence of God. I mean, what is he to do? This is the holy presence of God. Instinctively, he reaches out his hand to hold it in place. He's trying to do a good thing. He's trying to do a noble thing. He's trying to protect the ark. He's trying to protect God in a sense. What's so wrong about that? And here it is. Uzzah didn't see how deep that chasm was. You don't just go to God. Not without a sacrifice. That's why the rules were important. To show the, the world that there's no one like the God of the Bible. No matter how noble you are, no matter how good you think you are, no matter how good your pedigree is, that's what killed Uzzah. The ark was never supposed to be seen. It was never supposed to be, it was always supposed to be covered. It was never to be touched. It was always supposed to be carried with poles. Uzzah wasn't struck down because he broke the rules, essentially. If that was the case, I mean, they all should have been dead at some point. God is very patient. Even David wasn't aware of the rules, and he was the king. Why is this so important? Because think about it. Every other religion has temples. Every other religion has shrines and, and artifacts. 
And what do you see? Long lines of people waiting to do what? To enter into the temple and to touch things. They go in there and they wanna, they're trying to touch it because in every other religion around the world, touching those things and coming to those places, making those pilgrimages, right, it, it shows devotion. But the God of the Bible says, no, you can't come near. Do not come near. If, I, I don't want you to perish. My heaviness is so heavy, so weighty. My, my brilliance is so brilliant. My beauty is so beautiful, so pure. It will wipe you out. And I don't want you to be wiped out. You will die. There is an infinite rift that has been caused by our sin. And there's nothing that you can do, nothing that you can do to appease me. You can't come to me. I have to come to you, he says. The very presence of the ark shows us that God, it is God's presence, but only he can come to us. It can only happen through the work of his grace. And Uzzah, I mean, he knew about this. He knew about the chasm. He was brought up as, as a people of God. That means that you could grow up in this church. You can grow up in the church all your life. And yet, although you know about the chasm, you know that you're a sinner cognitively, but not in a way that it shapes you. Uzzah didn't die because he knew he was so bad. He died because he thought he was so good. You see that? He's thinking, this is for God. I'm going to be fine. The problem is, Uzzah thought that his hand was cleaner than the dirt. But God would rather, I mean, what is, what is one of the lessons of this passage? God would rather have the ark fall to the ground and touch the dirt as opposed to our hands. Really? I mean, why? When you look at the soil, I mean, we look at the soil and we say, oh, it's so dirty. We're always like, oh, my hands are dirty. But if you think about it, soil is good. Soil does exactly what God created it and designed it to do. You plant things in the soil, what happens? Things grow. Life happens. But do you or I live the way that we were designed to live, to reflect the image of God, to reflect the glory of God? No. We're like Uzzah. The Bible says we instinctively resist. We instinctively fight the truth about ourselves and our sinfulness, and it's killing us. We don't see how wide that chasm is. No? I mean... How many of you, I mean, how do you react when somebody who really knows you, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's even your children, somebody who deeply knows you, a best friend, somebody who's really close to you, your parents probably as well, right? They say, well, you know, there's something in you that makes you very defensive. They say, you know, I see a certain type of pride in you, or I see a certain type of, um, you know, ugliness in you. And, and what happens, you know, you're living in fear. There's this pattern of sin. You're easily hooked into this thing or to, or to that thing. And it's going to hurt your relationship with God. How do you respond? You, oh, thank you very much. I mean, goodness. I mean, I see you loving me. I see you trying to rescue me from myself and from my sin. No, that's not what we do. We instinctively and instantly get defensive. We resist. The Bible's saying that's what killed Uzzah. That's what's killing you. Like Uzzah, we don't see the chasm. We don't see the, na, the need moment by moment for God's sheer grace by way of a sacrifice. So here's Uzzah. He's walking. This oxen stumbles. The ark is falling. Uzzah doesn't even realize what he's doing. It's so instinctive in us because we don't see the chasm. We don't reflect on the holiness of God. We don't reflect on the need for God's grace moment by moment. So he reaches out his hand. Instantly he dies. Everything comes to a halt. David, he sees that. 
Now he wakes up. Verse 9, right there he realizes all the good that I'm doing right now, it doesn't matter. I'm still on the other side of the chasm. A lot of us in the room, a lot of us in this room, we know we're sinners. But we still functionally live as though our goodness is enough. You see that? So we live right. A lot of us, I mean, you know, we look at it and say, well, I mean, I'm not, I'm not like those people who we see on the news all the time. No, I'm never going to be on the news. I'm a good person. I'm clean, morally, for the most part. And on top of that, coupled with that, a lot of us here are very well pedigreed, so we have clean reputations on top of that. But you just can't be criticized. You just can't be criticized, not because you're bad, but because you're so good. And so it makes you proud, and you say, I deserve respect. The moment someone, you feel like you're disrespected, you bristle at that. It makes you angry, and so we're resistant to people. We're not resilient to criticism. We're very resistant to their criticism, especially, we're resistant to those people, especially people who challenge us. And so as a result, we become less loving, we're less kind, we're more angry. There's this quiet undercurrent of arrogance that sets into our lives. It's because we don't see the chasm. It's because we don't see the chasm. There are also people here in this room. I mean, they look around and they see everybody else. And they say, well, everybody here is so good. I've been away from the church for a long time. I'm a failure. And you're crippled by guilt and you're crippled by shame. And yet you, you don't really know how to present yourself. And there's almost a kind of envy as well. That there's an undercurrent of envy in your life because you almost kind of wish that you had somebody else's life. You still don't see the chasm. Why? Because if you really see the chasm, you would know it was never about your moral goodness in the first place. It was never about your works in the first place. Because the Bible says there is no one righteous. There is no one righteous, not even one. If you really see the chasm, it would wake you up. David sees Uzzah dead, and he wakes up. Verse 8, he's angry. Why? Because this is what he wanted. All of this was so that he could get the presence of God. And now he can't. All of this was so that he could bring the ark into Jerusalem, the, the holy city. He wants God. He's been pursuing God. But then it sets in. And in verse 9 it says, then he was afraid. Why? Because he sees the chasm. He asks the question, well, then how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? How will I ever be able to reconcile with God? How will I ever be able to meet with God? In other words, how can I bridge this gap that exists? And then he gets it. And that's the last point, the third point. We need to stare down that chasm. Friends, some of us, I mean, you've been broken by your past. Some of us, we're broken right now in the present because we see that chasm. Maybe you're actually starting to get it. And if you do, then you need to see the provision of God. Because if you see the provision of God, it's going to heal your guilt. It's going to also heal your pride. Yes, Uzzah died because of the ark, but the ark was a mere representation of God. It merely pointed to the actual kavod of God, the actual glory of God, but it also points to the mercy of God as well. When David left the ark after Uzzah died, he left it. He had no choice. I mean, he left it at the house of Obed-Edom. Obed-Edom is a Gittite. He was essentially uh, a foreigner because he's, from, he's, he's a Gittite, he is essentially a foreigner living in Israel. Now, remember, in Ashdod, tumors broke out. 
Beth Shemesh, they lifted up the ark, they opened it up, 70 people died. Uzzah just touches it and he dies. Obed-Edom is a Gittite. He's not even, uh, from, from, he's not even from Israel. He's actually, a Gittite means he's from Gath. You know who else was from Gath? We just saw this last chapter. The last passage we studied. Goliath was from Gath. So Obed-Edom, he was part of the enemy. But in verse 11 it says, the Lord blessed Obed-Edom. The Lord blessed his enemy and his entire household. This foreigner from an enemy nation, and yet he was descended from a line of priests, and his name means a foreign neighbor, or better, a foreign servant. You know what that means? If you're from a line of priests, you know the chasm. You understand the chasm. You understand and you see the holiness of God. You understand, if you're a priest, you understand the need for a sacrifice. And so Obed-Edom offers himself. He says, why would the people of God die? He's offering himself to bridge the chasm. I mean, think about it. If Obed-Edom, the enemy, a sinner can get it. And if he can receive and if he can experience the presence of God and be blessed through it, any one of us here in this room can get it. That's what that means. It's offered to us. Now, wait a second. We've got to answer, we've got to address one kind of thing here. Some of us here are thinking, well, why go through all this? I mean, if God was really merciful, if God really wanted to forgive his people, why does he just say, you're forgiven, and just call it a day? Why can't he just let it go? Have you ever been hurt deeply in your life? Betrayed by somebody? We have enough people, all adults here in this room, we've all experienced the pain of betrayal in some ways. If you've ever been wronged in your life, you know, you know. I mean, some of you this morning probably got in an argument with your spouse. And that one little tip, you know it's so hard to just let it go. Why can't you let it go? Because that injustice or that betrayal, somebody's got to pay the price for that. There's a chasm. When you get in an argument with someone, or, be, I mean, more seriously, if you're betrayed by somebody, there's a chasm in your relationship. And either that person needs to pay the price to bridge the gap, or if you just let it go, what you're really saying is you are functionally bridging the gap in that relationship. Either they're going to pay the price, which means they're going to receive your wrath and your anger and your retaliation, or if you just let it go, you're paying the price. You're going to absorb the pain and the humiliation and you're going to absorb it all by yourself, all alone. Either they're going to suffer or you're going to suffer. Either way, someone's going to suffer the tears. Someone's going to suffer the humiliation. Somebody's going to suffer the pain. And if that's how it is between us, we're finite created beings. How much more for an infinite God who's been hurt infinitely and betrayed infinitely by his people? But in verse 12, David got it. There was a provision. David himself... David is the king. In verse 12, it says that he came down. And he brings the ark back. The ark was carried back to Jerusalem. And so in verse 13, after six steps, what does David do? He makes a sacrifice, just like a priest. In other words, David got the fact that you can't just approach God with your own righteousness. But if there is a sacrifice for your sins, God will open up a way. It's why God's presence over the ark is called the mercy seat. That's why. A priest, upon entering in, would make a sacrifice, and there's blood spilling everywhere. But that gives you passage. You're covered now. 
and you can reconcile and meet with God. Yes, we are dead in our sins. Yes, through the blood, through death, atonement is possible. Centuries later, Jesus Christ is a greater king than David, a greater priest than David, a greater priest than Obed-Edom. He offers himself to bridge the ultimate chasm. He becomes the perfect high priest so that we would have access. We would have access to the glory of God, to the kavod glory of God. We would have access to the brilliance and the beauty of God. We can be intimate with God. That intimacy that David so easily, so much desired on the cross, Jesus Christ personally absorbed the full wrath of God. So on the cross, there you see the humiliation and the blood and the suffering and the tears and the pain and the death. What's he doing? He's paying for our sins. He's paying the price for our sins. I mean, David, he came down himself. He is the king who came down himself to make the sacrifice. Jesus Christ, the ultimate king, comes down to make the ultimate sacrifice. He offers himself to bring his people to full intimacy with God so they can access the glory of God. And so at Gethsemane, the garden, Jesus Christ says, my soul, this is the night before he was betrayed, the night he was betrayed, the night before he dies, he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow, with trouble to the point of death. Why? Because he is staring down that chasm and he recognizes the cost. And yet he still prays, not my will, but yours be done. In other words, Father, I'm going to pay the price. That's what he says. And so on the cross, Jesus is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I have been forsaken. I'm experiencing the infinite chasm now. I've been struck down. I'm suffering the full force of the wrath of God. This is the kavod glory of God has departed from me. Remember Ichabod? So Phineas, Phineas' wife is in labor and she gives birth. Why? Because when she sees that the glory of God has departed, she names her son Ikavod. Ikavod meaning the glory of God has departed. Jesus Christ on the cross becomes the ultimate Ikavod. No glory. The glory of God has forsaken me. Why? So that we would have his glory. So that we would have infinite access to God. So that we would have new life in God. So that we would have joy in the brilliance and the beauty of God. You see that? The wrath of God has been satisfied. We call that atonement. God's love, God's love, God's mercy satisfied his own justice. And if you see Jesus doing that for you, sweating and bleeding and suffering and weeping and dying for you, well, you're going to be able to sing that hymn. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of what? Of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of the spirit, washed in his blood. When David saw Obed-Edom, he caught just a glimpse of what we here are able to see in full in Jesus. He got a glimpse of the gospel that God can look at an enemy and say, I'm going to bless you with my presence through a sacrifice. David just caught a glimpse, but we are able to see it in full in Jesus. Before he got the gospel, David, he was just part of the procession. He didn't see the chasm. It left him angry and afraid. In verses 12 to 14, though, once he got it, 
Once he got the intimacy, once he got the brilliance and the beauty, what do you see him doing? He's rejoicing. He's dancing with all his might. It changed his life. This is the king who is supposed to be representing order in his country, and yet you see him freaking out, right? I mean, he is undressed, disrobed, undignified, dancing and rejoicing with all of his might. In other words, he went from believing God, knowing incognitively, believing God, fearing God, to worshiping God. What about you today? I mean, his wife, Michal, looks at him and says, it just despises him in her heart. That's what, that's what it says in the text. I mean, this is embarrassing that a king would undignify him like this, himself like this. Kings don't do that. But David, he didn't care about the criticism anymore. Why? Because his relationship with God was so real, so real. He stopped caring what other people thought. The love of God was so real, it shaped him not, to not only see the chasm, that we are more sinful than we could ever imagine, but he also saw the atoning grace of God, the gospel, that we are more loved than we ever dreamed. And to the, to the degree that you sense how much you are loved, how much you are known, how much Jesus, the cost that he paid, it will lead you to worship and dance. We're about to do that now in response. Let's pray.